0: It always feels like when we come back to this after a couple of weeks not doing it, that, it, I don't know, I just feel a little rusty every time. You know what I we mean? We feel rusty
1: regardless, but yeah, no, I I know.
0: <laughs> okay, it's every fine. Week, yeah. Every week is Go a there. new
1: test and shaking off the rest.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about why we didn't record the last couple of weeks because um y'all were there you've been around you've been paying attention you're a to the human news.
1: in the world and yeah if you are a recluse living in some remote part of antarctica that's the only excuse you could potentially have but even then
0: even in antarctica i'm sure they know because they definitely know are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names.
1: Oh, if it's naughty to ruse your lips, shake your shoulders, shake your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad.
0: I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. This is Good Witches, Bad Bitches.
1: Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> I'm Hannah. I'm That's Deanna. Deanna and uh we talk about women you know just and like their their kin <laughs> and their kin yeah yeah i feel like if i knew how to pronounce women with an with the x in man then like that would cover
1: women you know what i mean women
0: yeah. women and
1: i really but, don't um, mean to make fun that's not what my intent is right now but that
0: no it's just it like written cause, out cause it looks great yeah yeah, yeah. But, and it but, is the
1: exact term of what we do here.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's we discuss
1: just, um, women, wimex, and
0: so yeah. I think that I think that covers what we do here pretty well. It is Pride Month, in addition to being a time where we are really coming to terms with, um, I think, Black Lives Matter in a way that we weren't when Black Lives Matter first. Was a thing. I saw a poll the other day that was like, you know, forty-eight percent of Americans support Black Lives Matter, whereas like when it first started, it was half that or something, like some stupid number. And mm-hmm. people m- more and more are starting to understand what's what's actually going on and the importance of Black Lives Matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it like, does feel like. One of the positive feelings that I've gotten out of lots of rollercoastery y types of emotions the last couple of weeks is that, it, and maybe I'm being optimistic, but it feels like we maybe reached a tipping point fucking finally, where it actually so. means something, and it's not yeah. just noise in the void.
0: I really hope so, because I know they felt that way in 1968, um, and then were very disappointed to see that that tipping point wasn't really didn't it didn't tip and um not in a not in a crucial way and i hope that that doesn't happen again i hope that we are i hope that we figure out a way to keep going and keep that momentum going and that i mean that requires those of us who are not used to living our lives this angry and this exposed to these emotions um to continue to immerse ourselves even when it's uncomfortable. And yeah. we have had a lot of privilege in not having to be uncomfortable if we didn't want to be. And right. that is that is where change comes from, is when people who it's it's when white people finally fucking decide to say something and do something about white supremacy. And do well, it in a meaningful way.
1: And uh, I, there's there was a quote I saw and I, it's so basic that I was like yeah no shit but then, I had never heard someone frame it that way, before then, where it was like um, white supremacy is not a black issue, mm-hmm. that it, it's a white issue yeah, that we're it's the a ones a white that people have problem. To, we have to fix it <laughs> we don't just have to empathize with people who have to deal with it, right, we created the sympathize test. I guess we can't empathize because we are not of color. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So. Yeah, no, we, we created the problem and now we have to fix it.
1: No, what what makes me feel good, I started um, reading white supremacy in me and starting to do the journaling and stuff in the last Ooh. couple of weeks. It's been really good. Layla F. Saad uh, wrote it and um, it's really good work. And um, oh. I mean, I'm literally, I just started, but there's there's so many things that. Just even in the initial journal prompts that I've been writing about where it's kind of been eye opening in a way and how it is what you were saying about it being uncomfortable and that you can't be afraid of that. But then at the same time, you need to make sure you're also not burning yourself out because it is going to make you feel upset and it is going to make you feel emotional and it's gonna make you feel defensive, and it's gonna make you feel guilty and uh, full of shame, and you're not gonna get any like gold stars for doing it. <laughs> right. It'll just make you a yeah. better person.
0: Yeah, that's a really um, important fact. I mean, you can't just you can't just go to your black friends and say, "Look at all this great work I've been doing." I was Do I journaling have about
1: about the privilege that I have, and they're like, "Yeah, no shit."
0: Yeah. good now keep keep doing that and stop telling me about about it it. yeah Yeah. i i think that's a really good point because so much so much of the the faux allyship we've seen over the years is the is the allyship that comes from people who want the cookies you know they they want to be seen as as like doing the work and Mm -hmm. i'm such an ally and i'm such a great person and then when the minute someone says it's not enough or you you know maybe framed this the wrong way or this thing that you did was still participating in a racist system they go well fuck you i'm an ally i'm you know i'm not racist and blah, 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 blah. and like that's you know you got to get used to the idea that nobody's going to go say good job you because this is work we we just we need to be doing
1: well, it's like when we talk about on this podcast, uh, when like men or fathers or husbands get like all these, all this praise for doing basic good human things.
0: <laughs> right.
1: It's like, what are you, they're meeting basic minimum. This is how people should be treating people they care about. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> thresholds. Yeah.
0: He's not an abuser. Great. So. Congratulations. Oh Yeah. Fantastic. Um. So with all of that in mind, I've been I've been trying to think of how I wanted to approach finding somebody for this week's episode. Yeah. And um.
1: Yeah, and I ended. Did you find a sort of intersection there?
0: Oh, it's very interesting you say that word. It's very interesting you say that word, um, and I'm not going to answer that question because okay. I'm just I'm going to go into I'm just going to go into into who I'm talking about because I had never heard of this group of people oh. before, uh, but their work was really pivotal for um, feminism as we know it today. Okay, are you a
1: good witch or a bad bitch? let us know by
0: becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. Oh
1: no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And The
0: more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So, if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can
1: start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast, and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that?
0: Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. Today I'm talking about the Combahee River Collective. Does this ring any bells? No. No. Cool. Um, All right. And I know that there are probably some people who live in, I think the river is in North Carolina, and they pronounce it Combi. I recognize that that is how you say it when you're living in the South, but the collective referred to themselves as the Combihee River Collective, so I'm going with that. Um, Just for anyone listening who might be like, (laughs) no, 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 it's Combi or Kembee, or or however they pronounce it. um,
1: I mean, it's not to interject my own personal experience here, but being a person who grew up part of my childhood in Texas, I can tell you all the time that the way you say it when you're from there is not like the Blanco River. Yeah. um, When it's Blanco. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's like a freeway. It's uh, Manchaca. And everybody calls it Manchac. (laughs) If you're from there, you call it Manchac. But uh, that's cool. Stuff like that. (laughs) That's, that's, you know, I'm sure what you're saying is a non-English word.
0: Yeah, I believe it's Native American. Mm-hmm. I probably should have looked up which tribe, but I did not. Um, but either way, the collective referred to themselves as the Combahee River Collective.
1: I'm excited. Um, I have yeah. no frame of reference for this.
0: It's fascinating. Um, their work is fascinating. So um, I got. I have a lot of sources today. Um, AmericanStudies.Yale.edu, BlackPass.org. Um, an article written by Tisa Anders there, um, an article by Linda Napikoski in ThoughtCo, um, a an excerpt from Kianga Yamata Taylor's book about the um, collective in the MonthlyReview.org, um, an article by Ashia Ajani in Them.us or U.S. I guess I don't know. Uh, <laughs> all those new <laughs> dot. <laughs> dot blah blah blahs like sometimes they're
1: (laughs) i don't know why um, that tickled me so i think it was your facial expression because
0: i was like wait a minute with a shrug who knows um an article by barbara smith who was in the collective uh for new york times um an article by dianca london potts which i'm i love that name dianca london potts um For Shondaland.com I know Um, And then lastly an article by Keisha Price for
1: Ebony.com Did you say Shondaland.com Like Shonda Rhymes
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah I actually I've done a few We've done a few episodes where I've Gotten information from them um, Which is great They have a lot of like historical Cool Stuff historical articles on there So kind of cool Um But yeah, so with that, I'm just going to dive in. So in 1863 in South Carolina, Harriet Tubman freed more than 750 slaves from the Confederacy in the Combahee River Raid, the only military campaign in U.S. history, at least according to this article from Black Past, um, that was conceived and directed by a woman, Mm -hmm. which is crazy, especially because I think a lot of people maybe don't know that Harriet Tubman did that. You know, you think of Harriet Tubman as being somebody who worked along the Underground Railroad and helped free slaves and that kind of thing. But I didn't remember learning anyway about her, um, her this event, this campaign.
1: So... Well, I mean, I'm sure that Harriet Tubman did a lot of things that I don't know about because I wasn't taught about it in school.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So she freed 750 plus slaves. And... Um, more than, a little more than 100 years later, in 1974, the Combahee River Collective was born in Boston and named in an homage to Harriet Tubman's military feat. Oh. Yeah. It was launched by black lesbian feminists who were disillusioned with the second wave of American feminism that started in the 1960s and who felt that they could craft a political message more tailored to their very specific predicament, being black lesbian uh, women than the National Black Feminist Organization was doing at the time. Um, the members of the collective were often kind of fluid, but Wikipedia lists a few of the members, so I wanted to at least mention them. Um, the founders were Barbara Smith, Demita Frazier, and Beverly Smith, Barbara's twin sister. Oh. And then we have Cheryl Clark, Gloria Akasha Hull, Audrey Lorde. Who people should know? She's a poet, um, very famous poet, uh, Sherlane McRae, Who I did not connect this until I looked her up. She's our, she's New York City's first lady. She's married to Bill De Blasio. Um, really? Yeah. Which is like, whoa. I don't know. It just so incongruous to me. But yeah, she's she is NYC's first lady. Um, Weird. Yeah. Uh, Margot Okazawa Ray and Helen L. Stewart. And of course there were, like I said, lots of members, but these were, uh, people who were more essential to like the, the goings on the, the workings of the collective. Cause they did a lot of retreats and orga- organizing of stuff like that. And so they needed a slightly larger coalition than their original founders. I see. Um, But so I wanted to start with this little excerpt from Ebony, um, the piece by Keisha Price, because it just, I think, says a lot of what I wanted to say really well. So she wrote, Barbara Smith's introduction to women's liberation came as a student on campus at Mount Holyoke College in 1968. Um, Anti-war activist Mark Rudd was visiting the school, and a woman traveling with him spoke about the women's liberation movement. Smith, who had grown up during racial segregation, was skeptical about the movement's message and its target audience. Um, She said, I could not figure out how the women's liberation movement could be, given the fact that she was white. What did white women have to complain about? (laughs) From her (laughs) standpoint, the relationship between black and white had been fraught with tension throughout U.S. history. White women were considered the mistresses of the plantation, while black women were relegated to slave labor. She said, uh, the movement's message was hard for me to grasp from my perspective because white women were already so privileged.
1: Mm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And so she was more concerned about her oppression as a black person than she was her oppression as a woman. Um, So after she graduated college in 1969, she started to understand that the playing field really wasn't even in regards to women and equal rights. And she said, when I experienced some of the attitudes and issues that all women faced, that was when I became interested in feminism. Mm. And in 1973, she and her twin sister Beverly, who was working on the staff at Ms. Magazine, had a chance encounter with one of its editors, Margaret Sloan. She was organizing the first Eastern regional conference for the National Black Feminist Organization, or the NBFO, and invited both sisters to the event. The conference called for women of color to convene in New York City and discuss issues that were being ignored by the white-dominated women's liberation movement. Hmm. Yeah. Barbara Smith met with other Boston delegates to establish a local NBFO chapter there. The idea sounded simple, but it fell apart. She and other Boston activists realized that their political agenda was more radical than the NBFO, especially given her additional marginalization as an out lesbian. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, yeah. So it was like, oh, shit, this organization that is supposed to be tailored to me and my experience isn't calling for the kind of radical action that... A, I need as somebody who also deals with homophobia, um, but also that that she thought women bl- and black women needed in order to, like, get a clean slate. Right. So in 1974, she co-founded the Combahee River Collective with her sister Beverly and an activist named Demita Frazier, who had been very active with the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Ah, uh-huh. Yeah, which I thought was really cool. She had organized a Vietnam walkouts and peaceful protests, um, and the three of them got other feminists involved. So during second wave feminism, you know, second wave feminism, um, many black feminists felt like the women's liberation movement was defined by and paid exclusive attention to white middle class women. Yes. Kind of like the suffrage movement, uh, yes. if we remember that. Um, Which notorious racists? (laughs) Notorious racists. And if you, if you maybe didn't learn about this in school, yeah, black women didn't get the right to vote until 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed. That was the first time that their right to vote was actually protected, and they were not,
1: yeah, they weren't turned
0: away at the polls and all of that shit. So it wasn't until like 40 plus years later that black women
1: actually got to vote. So that's insane. You know? Yeah. Um, I yeah, remember so. learning about that watching Sister Sister. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> the first time Tia and Tamara went to vote, they talked about it. Oh,
0: god. That show is so good. <laughs> I wonder if that's on anything. Like any streaming. sure.
1: we got to go sure. look for that.
0: We do. I love that show. Anyway. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that tangent. Um, Things you don't learn in school,
1: but you learn on television.
0: Um, So the Combahee River Collective wanted to develop a Black feminist ideology and explore the shortcomings of, quote, mainstream feminism's focus on sex and gender oppression above all other types of discrimination, Mm -hmm. while also examining sexism in the Black community. Part of what made them different from the larger National Black Feminist Organization was that they also looked at lesbian analysis, particularly that of black lesbians, and Marxist and other anti-capitalist economic analyses.
1: Ooh. Mm
0: -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. So Barbara Smith told Ebony, we had a multi-issue perspective. It was understood that being radical was to the far left of being progressive. Plus, a number of us had experience in leftist politics, and that's one of the things that characterized the Combahee River Collective. Demita Frazier told them, told Ebony, we felt very strongly that we had the right to stand up and articulate a politics that looked hard at the conditions of black women specifically. So the next portion of this is uh, an adapted excerpt from Kianga Yamada Taylor's book, how We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, which I will link to in the show notes if anybody is interested in looking for that. Um, and I did have to pair some of it out just for, just for time. But she kind of goes into a little bit more depth about really what they were trying to do. So their approach looked at a, quote, simultaneity of oppressions
1: rather than ranking and separating. It's interesting I said, did you find an intersection? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yep. Uh, Yeah. They, um, yeah. So a simultaneity simultaneity of oppressions rather than ranking and separating the oppressions at work. In other words, black women could not quantify their oppression only in terms of sexism or racism or of the homophobia experienced as uh, black lesbians like Barbara. They were not ever a single category, but it was the merging or enmeshment of those identities that compounded how black women experienced oppression. Yes. <laughs> Which feels like <laughs> radical to hear them, to, to hear that they ever had to explain that, you know, and that they yeah. ever had to, like, create an organization that, that really looked hard at that because it didn't exist in, like, in the 70s, you know, but that was the case. They just didn't have, they didn't have the space until they created it to really talk about what we know of as today, intersectional feminism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, so as a result, the CRC, the Combahee River Collective, believed that if you could free the most oppressed people in society, then you would free everyone. Correct. Which, when you say it that simplistically, it feels like, oh, yeah, totally. You look at the people who have the most intersecting oppressions laid Mm -hmm. upon them, Mm -hmm. and you focus on them, and them first, primarily, because when you deal with all of the oppressions that are intersecting to make them the most oppressed, then you deal with the oppressions everyone else is facing, too. Correct. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it should make sense. Um, but it, you know, here's the thing: is I think it also makes sense to a white supremacist society, and that's why they know not to do it. Yeah, they know. They know better than to help the most oppressed because they know that it would be the end of white supremacy, and that's not what they want. Mm. <laughs> um, one thing I think is very interesting about the CRC's mission. Was that they weren't necessarily looking for black women to join the CRC. They just wanted black women to join politics and political discussion in general.
1: Right. And
0: each of them had, in you know, various stages of their lives, experienced that feeling of, well, none of these movements are right for me, so I'm just not going to get involved. Well, Because, because there isn't a movement that represents
1: right. me. Right. Because I think you probably get looked over or shushed if you're saying, well, yeah, I experience this as a a black lesbian and someone goes, yeah, but I'm a white straight woman, so I have no idea how to connect to what you're saying. Yeah. And it's like, well, so that's not a feminist issue, the thing that you're bringing up, because I don't experience that. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's it. That's a you issue. Yeah. So we're not all going to collectively focus on that that is
0: 100% what they were facing. Yeah. And, um, and so for a lot of people, if you don't have the infrastructure to encourage you to move beyond those organizations that are not representing you, then like it, it can be easier not to, just not to participate because you don't necessarily know you can.
1: Yeah, and, which that
0: benefits yeah. the system that's already in place. Exactly. And that was that was really the CRC's biggest message was they were like, it doesn't matter if you join our collective. The whole the whole purpose really of us is to empower black women to feel like they're allowed to be involved and in advocating for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the unwillingness of white feminist organizations to fully engage with issues affecting black women, like campaigning against forced sterilization of black women, which is is still a problem, but it was a huge fucking problem at the time where, Mm -hmm. you know, especially you had women who were in prison or whatever, and they would um, in the aftermath of giving birth and being totally out of it, sign papers that were stuck under their noses that said, yes, I, I say that you can sterilize me so that there would be no more ability for them to have children,
1: <laughs> further children. That's so and, nefarious.
0: Um, it is. Because it's it's like fucked it, up. Because
1: they know exactly what they're fucking doing.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's intentional. And it wasn't an issue white women really felt bothered with. Yeah, well. Because why would they? They weren't being sterilized. So white feminists
1: didn't care. You know, also being imprisoned at much smaller of a rate. Right.
0: And and the black liberation movement was much more geared towards black men. And so Mm -hmm. it really wasn't their issue either.
1: Right. So the
0: CRC. It's like, well, let us
1: focus on this for now. Yeah. We'll get to you later. Which is the opposite of what they were saying. Like, no, you should you should free the lowest rung first, please. That's exactly it. Like, this is our this issues is a, matter, too.
0: Yeah, this is this is a crisis and it affects all of us, whether you realize it or not. And so they were very, very invested in in protesting that, you know, low paid um, labor, uh, just like everything that, that black women were facing at the time that people didn't really want to see. Right. They were the ones front and center protesting that. So the same was true within the Black Liberation Movement, which I mentioned, which was overwhelmingly dominated by Black men. And uh, indeed, she writes, it was not unusual for Black male organizers to oppose abortion rights for Black women on the basis that abortion was genocide for Black people.
1: Fascinating.
0: Yeah. Um, and, And Kiana doesn't talk in her book about this, but I kind of wanted to insert that this was also true for the gay liberation movement. Um, I found an article like weeks ago that I I can't remember what it was, but Marsha P. Johnson was talking about how like just a few years after Stonewall, she started to feel incredibly alienated by the gay liberation movement that she helped launch because because white gay men were taking over and making her feel unwelcome and didn't understand what her needs were versus their own they weren't invested in them and yeah. so you know it, it it really it was a problem in all of the liberation movements oh yeah The black women were just not represented right um so the thing that the that the crc is most known for is this this general statement that they made the Combahee river collective statement in 1977 and it was authored by Barbara and Beverly Smith and Demita. And I, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is very long. I will link to it in the show notes if anyone wants to go read it in full. Um, but I wanted to pick out a few of their statements. Just, to, just, a couple, like, just a couple things out of it that I thought were really important. Um, So the first one is, the most general statement of our politics at the present time, and given this was 1977, uh, would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see our particular task, the development of integrated analysis and practice, based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives, um, yes
1: yeah, so <laughs> I know I, one, ju- I just keep saying it I'm just like Because huh? it
0: feels so obvious now Like if, if you are somebody who, who refuses to call yourself An intersectional feminist You're like we know You're not okay
1: Whereas we know back that there's then, something wrong with your priorities and, <laughs> yeah. and you still hold Bigoted views
0: Right we know that now But mm-hmm. we didn't know that then mm-hmm. um, So here's another one As children, we realized that we were different from boys and that we were treated differently. For example, we were told in the same breath to be quiet both for the sake of being, quote, ladylike and to make us less objectionable in the eyes of white people. So they were told to be quiet for two separate reasons versus white women who were told to be quiet for the sake of being ladylike. Yep,
1: the comfort of men and then the comfort of white people, period.
0: Yes. Um, As we grew older, we became aware of the threat of physical and sexual abuse by men. However, we had no way of conceptualizing what was so apparent to us, what we we knew was really happening. Mm. Above all else, our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable, that our liberation is a necessity, not as an adjunct to somebody else's, but because of our need as human persons for autonomy.
1: What a concept.
0: (laughs) What a concept. They say this may seem so obvious as to sound simplistic, but it is apparent that no other ostensibly progressive movement has ever considered our specific oppression as a priority or worked seriously for the ending of that oppression.
1: I mean, I say what a concept. And yet that still is our jumping off point today, where when you say, hey, Black Lives Matter, someone has a fucking problem with that. Just like Michael Che did a whole bit where he was like, that's our negotiating point. We matter. That's it. They matter. (laughs) We matter. Yeah. If that's it's not even like we are thriving. We are, you know, important, contributing people of society in others' eyes. We're, you know, it's just matter. Like we're we are humans and we matter.
0: Yep. Which is exactly why I wanted to talk about this today, because it feels like. Yeah, this statement is forty ish years old, but
1: we need to hear it still.
0: Like we well, need and, to be and talking term,
1: about it. Keeping things intersectional. Like that's still the we're still struggling with like you try and get a man to respect women because women are their mothers and women are their sisters and women are their daughters. <laughs> right. Instead of just saying women are fucking people, so maybe respect right. them.
0: Yeah. Right. Or even J.K. Rowling the other day saying oh, like, Lord, I you don't know, even. I know we don't we don't need to discuss it, but it's a great example of like she is not an intersectional feminist.
1: Nope, And she came close. out
0: and made that very clear. And um and, it, you know, at this time in 1977, she would have been applauded for that. And she felt the need to have to defend the statement because enough people were like. Yo, JK, that's actually not, that's actually not
1: a a good stance. And she just keeps digging her heels in further. It's like really, really deplorable. And um, yeah, it's gross. I, I really wish she would come around. One of the positive things of that is just seeing all of the fucking cast members, large and small, coming out being like, trans people are important, trans women are women, trans men are men not everybody who menstruates is a woman not every woman menstruates so these are in and that is like saying that not everybody who menstruates is a woman and not every woman menstruates you can exclude trans folks from that and still have it be a fucking accurate statement but (laughs) trans folks are a part of that inherently but she's just so fucking obtuse whatever Yeah. yeah and you know how i feel about harry potter and we talk about harry potter and I just I feel so oh I feel so mad at, that she can't find intersectionalism in her feminism, and she blames misogyny as the reason why intersexual feminists are mad at her. Yeah,
0: because it's, women hate is
1: eternal. Like fuck you. Oh my god, fuck you big time. Yeah, like she we is don't exactly hate you why we hate you because you're a dick. You're an asshole. Right, because
0: <laughs> you are you are denying like personhood for people just because like. I don't really even know why. I don't know what you, what stake you have in it.
1: I don't but... either. And also, right now, of all fucking times, like who, like other more important things are happening in the world, and you decide now to to put this flag in the ground and go, this is the hill I'm dying on. You know, I'm
0: glad at at, at least like we're all angry enough and we're all paying enough attention that I think maybe even six months ago she could have gotten away with it. <laughs>
1: And now there's just no fucking way. <laughs> I just love her crying about like, I barely even go on Twitter anymore because the, the second I say something, this comes back to haunt me. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's almost like your words have fucking consequences. Yeah, your prejudice also, has consequences. You're a writer, so you know how to choose your words carefully.
0: <laughs> you would think. But uh
1: and with yeah. intention. Anyway, rant over. I've-
0: for now i think um she is the perfect example of like people who still exist who need this message which is why i'm talking about it yep so yeah i think that that's a really good like example of why we need to talk about this right now so yeah um yeah so i just have a couple more from their statement um this one says we realize that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are us Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters, and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle and work. So this next one is, we realize that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters, and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle and work. Which I just thought was a beautiful message, this idea of like recognizing your own inherent self-worth despite the oppression that is laid upon you by the world around. It's um, radical. Re-
1: it's really, yeah, it's really radical <laughs> when, when you have the upsetting thought that nobody else cares about these issues, so you have to love yourself enough and love people like you enough to fight for them yourself until other people start to fucking care.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, Let's see. Two more. We realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. Ooh. Ooh. We believe, or no. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products, not for the profit of the bosses. Material resources must be equally distributed among those who create the resources. We are not convinced, however, that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution will guarantee our revolution, our liberation. Sorry.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, very, like, it's, it is, it is so, it's crazy to me that even now, we can't talk about an idea like that without calling it radical, like, it's so out there, it's so fringe, but it isn't, It's and not- more and more, it isn't, like, more and more, we're starting to recognize that, like, quote, radical ideas like this are actually Potentially, what we need in order to actually survive as a country.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, the more sort of work I've been doing, the more I seem to find that progressives were actually pulled way to the center in this country because there became this really strong sort of, I think it was like the 70s. Is what I'm like gathering from, you know, documentaries and things with Nixon and shit being yeah. about law and order. And if you're soft on crime and soft on, uh, soft yeah. period, it was seen as like a, a negative thing to have human empathy. And you had to be tough in order to, you know, uh, sort of survive. Which, yeah. in a sense, is, is, um, accessible as a thought um which is why it took off but how it really deeply pulled progressive ideas or people who called themselves progressives to have to say things that were not very progressive so that they could maintain their job yes i mean like politically speaking yeah you know if you were a political candidate yeah i mean and i'm certainly just you know crowing something that I heard so it's not like any idea that I've had but like
0: it's it's fascinating to
1: see because now it's like someone like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez will say like hey people who clean you know homes people who clean schools people who clean hospitals very important and should be treated as the important people they are for the important work that they do yeah, and and someone's like, ah, you fucking socialist down and it's just like, what the fuck is? How is it radical to say, someone is their job is important, and they should be compensated fairly? Yeah, that's not I,
0: radical. I think it was an article I was reading, maybe by a Canadian journalist who was talking about how, um, how American progressive politics are like every other. Uh, like, Canada and and Europe, like, it's their conservative politics. Or at least their centrist politics. politics. And and our, quote, radical politics are their just progressive politics. Mm -hmm. And that was really eye-opening for me, this idea Mm -hmm. that, like, oh, wow, what we consider progressive is still based in the idea that, like, like, some social, um, norms that we want toppled is too out there. Like it's too out there to want to have like real equity for everybody. Yeah. But anyway. Um last one. Sorry,
1: I like totally No, this took is over. this is
0: what no, this is what I'm what I've listed them out for. is I wanna I, I felt like they were super current and wanted to be able yeah. to talk about them. Yeah. So, okay, So one issue that is of major concern to us and that we have begun to publicly address is racism in the white women's movement. As black feminists, we are made constantly and painfully aware of how little effort white women have made to understand and combat their racism, which requires, among other things, that they have a more than superficial comprehension of race, color, and black history and culture.
1: That's hard work. I don't want to do it.
0: I don't want to do it. I don't want to listen to you. (laughs) Eliminating racism in the white women's movement is by definition work for white women to do. But we will continue to speak to and demand accountability on this issue. So I thought that was appropriate for everything we talked about
1: before we launched in about. And again, that's a nice thought, but it shouldn't have to be your problem to police that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, yep. It's our problem as white women to deal with, not yours. But bless you for, you know.
0: Yeah. And I appreciated that they, bringing that they it up. stated that. Yeah. That they were well, like, sure. you know, that we understand that racism in the white women's movement is, is up to white women to deal with. Like, I think, I think that the idea that racism is a white person's problem uh, was radical, which is why again they are technically considered like a radical movement. Um, but it's just the reality. Combahee River Collective was disbanded in 1980, but their message continued and continues to resonate with activists to this day. And though they didn't come up with the term intersectional feminism,
1: the yeah, term that was came coined, around in the 80s, yeah, in 1989. Early 80s. Oh, late 80s. OK.
0: Yeah. Um, to describe exactly what these women were trying to bring to the feminist movement. Nowadays, we see it as a very bad thing, if you don't believe in intersectional feminism. And we can see, uh, we can see now and understand that choosing to prioritize one form of oppression versus recognizing that oppressions intersect for certain groups is actually anti-progressive. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to end with this little tidbit from them.us or dot .us. Yes. Who knows? Uh, Barbara Smith dedicated her entire life to liberation work, as did her other co-founders, and she was also the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. No shit. Yeah. Beverly Smith and Demita Fraser have both written extensively about black feminism and now work as instructors and mentors. Um, And I also wanted to just mention quickly that there is a group called the Smith Caring Circle, which was organized to provide Barbara Smith with monthly monetary support, as she is still working paycheck to paycheck without pension or retirement. (laughs) Capitalism. Fun! Capitalism. Um, So, yeah. So I'm going to put the link to that in our show notes, just in case anyone wants to check that out and maybe make a charitable donation, because... Um, they did a lot of really amazing work. Mm. But that is uh, the the bare minimum.
1: <laughs> the Cliffs Notes version. The
0: Cliffs Notes version of the Combahee River Collective and the work that they did in the 70s to really bring to the fore intersectional feminism and create a, a progressive feminism that we now understand today as the best feminism, the only real feminism. <laughs> if you are um, someone who is interested in dismantling oppressive systems.
1: of oppression. Systems.
0: <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that is, that is that. That's the Combahee River Collective.
1: That was awesome. Thank you. And it's not as heavy as I, I mean dense you, but not maybe dents, heavy sure but it's still hopeful which yeah. is nice and refreshing yeah and just it for felt... my last two weeks of everything
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it, on the one hand it made me sad that they had these brilliant ideas in the 70s and couldn't get the world to agree with them at the time um and you know and barbara smith has talked about how i mean very similar to marsha p johnson she doesn't really attend like pride events anymore because she really felt pushed out of the movement mm. um by not only white gay men but also corporations and the whole pinkwashing or whatever that is called of the of the movement and um Yeah, she doesn't really feel comfortable supporting it anymore. And that's a bummer because it was such a, a bright light when it first started. You know, it was like, oh, man, shit is like maybe we can actually change some things. And they did, obviously, like things things absolutely happened from that. We wouldn't have gay marriage without the gay liberation movement. But we also have to recognize that it was
1: not an intersectional
0: movement at first, and Mm -hmm. often still isn't.
1: Well, the thing, it's funny because it seems like it was an intersectional movement right at its outset, and then it quickly shifted toward, because obviously Stonewall was started by gender nonconforming folks, and uh, they quickly became seen as sort of outcasts of the movement somehow yeah the thing
0: the thing that is so interesting about stonewall to me is like that is not like stonewall was not where necessarily where like gay men went to club no you know it was where the gender non-conforming
1: people went because yeah, it's they where knew women that could, they could go and wear pants and not get fined because people right. would get fined for not wearing gender-appropriate clothes, as we talked about in our episode about Stormy DeLarvery. Exactly. Because she was getting fined for dressing like a man and looking androgynous. And, yeah. And, and uh, trans folks, of course, like Marsha P. Johnson, would yeah. go and wear clothes that the police would say don't match the way you should be dressing. Right. And,
0: and so on the one hand, I think that you know, th- the fact that Stonewall was where so much of that happened and we equate Stonewall with the LGBTQ you know, movement um, is, is just kind of interesting because really Stonewall was, was primarily a safe place for trans folks. And we look at it as a gay movement as a, you know, as a, as an LGB movement. Yeah. We don't necessarily look at it as a trans movement, even though. Sometimes just LG, and then
1: sometimes just G.
0: (laughs) Right. And, and so it is kind of like, yes, um, people who were at the intersection of various oppressions were at Stonewall and started those riots, but... Uh, but I don't know that, like, actual gay liberation, the actual gay liberation movement was ever all that intersectional, at least in those mm-hmm. first years. Mm-hmm. I think that in the same way that lots of black women's work and um, black trans people's work has been co-opted by other movements over many decades, the gay liberation was very similar. And so was, you know, suffrage and um, just so many things. Me Too, the Me Too movement. I mean, you know, black people did that work, primarily black women and black trans women and, you know, on and on. And yeah. um, and we don't attribute enough of it to the originators of those things. And I mean, yeah, we could go on about this all night long, but I yeah. I just, I feel like I just feel like it is so important to be talking about this now and and talking about this particular work of the Combahee River Collective now because they were talking about it in 1977. So where the fuck were we and where the fuck are we now? And can we finally get on board with what they wrote in that statement 40ish years ago and actually start acting on it in a real meaningful way? any way. That is my soapbox. Can
1: and I, I would just like to say where I was in 1977. Please do. <laughs> where were you Deanna? Half of me was in my mom's ovary Ooh. and half of me probably wasn't created yet in my dad's testicles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're gross
1: and I love it. I was not even yet a twinkle. I don't even think my parents had met
0: yeah, I mean, when I say we, I just mean we as a society, but, you know. No, I
1: know what you mean. I was just being a troll.
0: You fucking troll. <laughs> my mom's going to have a word with you.
1: <laughs> that's her job now. Yeah, my mom,
0: my mom fights with trolls. Uh, that's what she does with most of her time now. Way to go. Um, all right, so I am actually not talking about any on this day in history. Because I wanted to talk about Juneteenth instead.
1: Go for which it, dude! Is
0: Friday, and um, yeah,
1: so and there will is be actually a Trump rally.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope they decide not to do that, but um, you know he's gonna. Oh uh, yeah, I don't
1: know. It's his homecoming for racists to go yeah. vent how they feel about everything that's been happening.
0: Yeah. And since I didn't learn about Juneteenth in school, or at least I don't I did remember not. learning
1: about it. No, I I literally was just talking I I'm gonna out myself on this podcast and <laughs> you know that's part of the discomfort. Let's just lean into it right now. Yep.
0: Yep.
1: I did not know about Juneteenth, never heard of it until I was in fucking grad school. Because I yeah. lived in the South in a place where I had oh, black friends for, right. you know, because Colorado, was hard, you know, that was when I actually started connecting with black friends because yeah. of, you know, lack of exposure in Colorado. Really, I right. had, you know, I'm not going to quantify anything, but I'm just saying i had literally never heard of it. Yeah, no, I had not either. And, and um, I sound like a foolish white person, but I'd never heard of it.
0: Well, for everyone else who is still a foolish white person, I am going to clarify it for you
1: now and it's okay for you to, yeah. to be a foolish white person. The systems are in place for you to remain blissfully ignorant of things yep. that don't apply to you, so that you yep. don't care about other things that don't apply to you.
0: Yep. But, Empathy uh, yeah. and sympathy. I, I think with that said, Juneteenth is a holiday that you should be celebrating, and I'm gonna tell you why. Um, this is from, I think, juneteenth.org. So there is a whole website dedicated to this particular day and event and all the events surrounding it. So if you want more info, it is there. But um, this is just their intro, their introduction to what Juneteenth is. So Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, It was on June 19th that the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and the enslaved were now free. Uh, Note that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on the Texans due to the minimal number of Union troops to enforce the new executive order. Uh, However, with the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, the forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome the
1: Confederate resistance. Dude, I was born in Texas. Uh Not far from Galveston. So Uh even that, me saying I had never heard of it, shows how insular things were for me. I mean, as a child, of course, children.
0: Well, in Texas, especially isn't going to want you to know that. But, 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 but what the fuck? (sighs) Yeah. Uh, Later attempts to explain this two and a half year delay in the receipt of this important news have yielded several versions that have been handed down through the years. Often told is the story of a messenger who was murdered on his way to Texas with the news of freedom. Uh, another is the news is that the news was deliberately withheld by the enslavers to maintain the labor force on the plantations, which mm-hmm. duh. and still another is that federal troops actually waited for the slave owners to reap the benefits of one last cotton harvest Yikes. before going to Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, all of which or neither of these versions could be true. Certainly for some, President Lincoln's authority over the rebellious states was in question. For whatever the reason, uh, conditions in Texas remained status quo well beyond what was statutory. Uh, One of General Granger's first orders of business was to read to the people of Texas General Order No. 3, which began most significantly with, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and uh, rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. The reactions to this profound news ranged from pure shock to immediate jubilation. While many lingered to learn of this new employer to employee relationship, many left before these offers were completely off the lips of their former, quote, masters, attesting to the varying conditions on the plantations and the realization of freedom. Even with nowhere to go, many felt that leaving the plantation would be their first grasp of freedom. North was a logical destination, and for many, it represented true freedom, while the desire to reach family members in neighboring states drove some to Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Settling into these new areas as free men and women brought on new realities and the challenges of establishing a heretofore non-existent status for black people in America. Recounting the memories of that great day in June of 1865 and its festivities would serve as motivation as well as a release from the growing pressures encountered in their new territory. Um, The celebration of June 19th was coined Juneteenth and grew with more participation from descendants. The Juneteenth celebration was a time for reassuring each other, for praying, and for gathering remaining family members. Juneteenth continued to be highly revered in Texas, Decades later, with many former slaves and descendants making an annual pilgrimage back to Galveston on this date, and I know I see you shaking your head. And what the the, the article goes on. I didn't paste it in here, because so you can go go look it up if you want to read more. But they talk about how like the Great Depression basically obliterated Juneteenth, mm. and um, it didn't really pick up. Uh, popularity again until much much later like the Mm. civil rights movement was basically when they started actually celebrating Juneteenth in a meaningful way again Mm. Um, so it was almost 100 years after after it first happened that people really uh, went back and went oh gosh there was this holiday that we used to celebrate and Mm -hmm. now we're going to celebrate it again so um, yeah There is a lot about that that I never learned, but that is this coming Friday. So be sure that you recognize it, that you're aware that it's happening and why it's important. And um, (laughs) that is that is my on this uh, week in history.
1: Can I tell you how perfect that is um, as a seg I promise we didn't plan this, but um, I'm doing less of a what I'm excited about and just giving a plain old recommendation. Oh, yes. Something we've talked about on this podcast before, um, but I just would like for any and all of our listeners who have not watched to please go watch the documentary 13th that Ava DuVernay made. Which is about the um, ramifications of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, except in the case of criminals and the
0: outfall Ooh.
1: of that. And um, how basically it was it was written by by former slave owners at the time that, you know, they're free. But if we we can create laws so that they're more criminalized and easier to jail so that we can use their labor and we can keep them afraid and keep them under our thumbs, even though they are theoretically free.
0: That's uh, that's awesome. I've I have been getting that recommendation. Um, I've gotten that recommendation a couple of times this week and I need to go go actually watch
1: it. And that's it's, on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Okay. Um, it is. I think you can also probably watch it on YouTube. But for, you know, to pay. But um, yeah. but I don't know for sure. That's just me spewing shit. Um, but it is an incredibly well made documentary because obviously, and it's just it was made in 2016 before Donald Trump even became president. and oh. it's it's fascinating how um, on the nose it is for even today and the things that we are uh, experiencing right now. So uh, yeah, highly recommend. Um, it's important watching for people of all colors, uh, most especially our white listeners. Um, please. I know my, I, my parents watched it after I told them they needed to. And, um, I think it, it creates good conversation and brings up a lot of important things. So
0: now I watched on YouTube, I watched a, a clip that was on the Netflix, um, account, I think that was I think like 30 minutes long and it was about the racial uh, wage gap. Hmm. Is, that, is that from this documentary or? I don't and it think was, so. Okay, I'm, uh, Samira Wiley from Orange is the New Black narrated it. Oh yeah. And so I'm gonna link to that as well because um, that was really fucking illuminating and it's only a 25 minute watch I think. maybe even less, like 20 minutes, but it's, uh, it explains, it just explains so concisely how um, our society has basically conspired to make sure that black people don't have land and can't... Opportunity. Right, can't access, yeah, the same kind of um, wealth or status that, like, white people have decided they deserve. Um
1: but using coded language so that yeah. people can't say it's a race thing.
0: Exactly. So that was also really cool and I was going to mention that as well. And the other thing I wanted to talk about cuz I don't know, did you listen to the 1619 podcast when it came out?
1: No, I have not listened to that one yet.
0: Dude, you sh- you really should. It's so good and I so I want I want to link to that if I can. Um, because it really does talk about slavery and what it actually was and, like, who Lincoln really was because, like, he was not really an abolitionist because he felt like...
1: That was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, he wanted a white America. And he thought that the best way to do that was to free slaves and ask them politely to go back to Africa. Really? Yeah. So 1619 talks about that. Um, and I'll link to that a little bit, but there's just, there is a lot of content that is really easy, easy to consume. Um, it's not going to take a ton of your time if like you don't have much or whatever, but, um, that I think is important to listen to. Uh, wow. Okay. I think that I've talked a lot. I love your recommendation. You've said a lot of great things. (laughs) Thank you. I've tried really hard. I did a lot of research this week. Um, You don't get any gold stars, Hannah. Oh, no. Well, then I take it all back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, dude, that was awesome. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And, gosh, I really hope that this was interesting and or meaningful for our listeners. And, you know, I I mean, it's pride. So happy pride to everybody. Happy pride. You know, we're going to keep talking about... um, we're gonna keep talking about pride, pride centric people, for the yeah. rest of the month, for sure.
1: I mean, um, and it's not like we don't anyway. I feel <laughs> yeah. like we talk about queer yeah. folks a lot.
0: We talk about queer folks a lot, um, but I like the I like the idea that maybe we're finding some intersection. Wow, that boom was like right at the it punctuated that so well. It really does um,
1: sound like someone's blowing up fireworks in a dumpster. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they might be. You never know in this neighborhood. Yeah. Um Youth. but, uh, youths, goddamn youths. <laughs> um <laughs> What was I saying? Fucking oh, just pride. Yeah. Great, cool. Happy now my brain's my brain's dead, so <laughs> Big gay to crime. Uh, the end. <laughs> um, and with that, I think we're done. I think that's it. I'm going to stop talking and let you guys go do your thing. So please just reach out to us on social media. We're at GWBB podcast on Instagram and Twitter. We're and Facebook. on Facebook. Um, and you can also email us as usual. Uh, we're also on Patreon at GWBB podcast and also ko-fi ko-fi.com um, yep. yeah and we gosh we so appreciate you guys you have been amazing support and um we really appreciate you so thank you for continuing to listen and give us your time and we will uh, be in your ears next week so peace out witches bye thank you
1: to Good Witches Bad Bitches thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it
0: Good Witches Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif me you
1: and you <laughs>
0: Hannah Ferguson
1: and we're produced by Benjamin Garst
0: um, you can find us on
1: iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Google Play. Pretty and much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at
0: patreon.com slash GWB GWB podcast, podcast. <laughs> become a
1: patron and help us you know pay for our hosting yeah Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content and it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast and it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out if you like it you can be a part of it also to help us out you can rate review and
0: subscribe All of the all of those things are extremely helpful for us they help other listeners
1: find us yeah word of mouth also good yeah (laughs) our website is gwbbpodcast.com you can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron good witches bad bitches is powered by moon Moon Bounce. bounce